here. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're less than one month away from World Cup 22, so sign up now. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the non-MLS soccer news. And in segment two, we'll talk about this weekend's MLS semifinals. Let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing well. Happy Halloween to you and the listeners. And today, as we're recording this, we are exactly three weeks from the start of the World Cup. And that is really affecting my prism through which I, I, I watch all of this soccer. And it feels like everything is being squeezed so we can get it in before the World Cup. And it's because this thing is going to start in three weeks. It's the biggest global sporting event in the world. I was driving through downtown Miami. There's a giant billboard up from Telemundo uh, ad- ad- advertising that they have the Spanish language broadcast. I'm starting to sense it. I'm starting to feel that the World Cup is nigh. It is nigh. Good call there on that word. <laughs> it's it's exciting. The days in, in we're in the final days now before World Cup just get me giddy. I'm giddy. Yeah. Um, and I will say that... It's a little it's a little tough for me right now because ordinarily I would have traveled this weekend to cover the NWSL final in DC and then gone to cover the MLS final for my site next weekend in LA and I am not and it's kind of killing me but I also know I'm going to be gone for 5 weeks very soon and wanted to actually spend some time with my wife uh, these two weekends. So I am still in New York. I am following what's happening in these finals, which we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, the giddiness factor is I, I'm getting it going. Um, and already, you know, planning my trip and, and getting everything, uh, squared away for five weeks in Doha. So, um, lots to talk about with the U S men's national team and people on the U S men's national team. So let's dive into probably the result of the weekend, which is Liverpool one, Leeds United two. Jesse Marsh wins a stay, I think, maybe for a little while um, in his job and under fire in recent weeks. They had gone uh, eight games in the league without a win. They'd had four straight losses. Fans were saying nasty stuff in the stands at games to Jesse Marsh. And so they go and win at Anfield, which is absolutely wild. Late game winner from Crescencio Somerville on a nice goal. And Liverpool, which, by the way, is, is really struggling right now. Yeah. Uh, but just a monster, monster win for Leeds United that could change the narrative around this season. This is the type of game that can turn a season around. It's not guaranteed to, but it certainly could. Yeah, and I think, to me, the thing that most stands out about this occasion was watching just how much Jesse Marsh is wearing this, like how much he personally is struggling with (laughs) everything that is going on around Leeds right now with being under this sort of pressure. Because even at Leipzig, when he was struggling, it was struggling relative to expectations, right? They were a mid-table Bundesliga team when they should be, you know, a top four, top two Bundesliga team. This This is relegation dog scrap, right? And this is one of the things that people talk about all the time that I, I saw even recently Heath Pierce uh, for CBS's uh, U.S. podcast talking about this is the pressure that American players don't feel to fight for your place, to fight f- against relegation. The the genuine pressure that comes with playing week in, week out in major European football, 
I think it was really cool that Leeds decided to keep Jesse Marsh when every club seems to sort of the the release valve is sacking the manager and eventually you you turn things around. But they stuck with him and they pull off this performance and Adams and Aronson, from a playing standpoint, put in two tremendous performances. Aronson should have absolutely, absolutely scored. He volleyed from seven yards out off the crossbar. He should have absolutely scored that. But on the whole, they were up for it. They were fit for the occasion. They were good enough to be on the same field as Liverpool and be on a team that beat Liverpool at Anfield the first time that's happened to Virgil van Dijk since he's been at Liverpool, which is a crazy amount of time. So I think from a playing standpoint, these are the sorts of experiences we want Americans to have, and it's part of the development curve that we've seen from the U.S. player over the last four or five years since they failed to qualify for the World Cup is that at club level, there's been a growth, and hopefully that will transmit to the aforementioned World Cup. Well, even though Leeds has been struggling, Aronson and Adams are not the reason why, you know, um, they've played well. They've been two of Leeds' best players this season, and they were immense in this game against Liverpool. And, you know, like I remember Jesse Marsh telling me when I visited right before the season, and he had a quote that was like, you know, like our fate is going to be determined by how, not by how we play against the very top teams in the league. Our fate's going to be determined by how well we do against teams sort of at our level. And so what's fascinating now is they're actually having success against the top teams. Two of their three league wins are against Chelsea and now Liverpool. They played well leads against Arsenal and their problems have actually been with teams lower in the table. And that also got me thinking like, you know, the, the system of Jesse Marsh is so much built around what you do when you don't have the ball. And I'll be honest, in recent weeks, I have started to question a little bit whether this style of play, which is so hardcore that Jesse Marsh's teams do, whether that style of play can work against the top teams in the Premier League. But that's what's crazy is it actually has, in, in a fairly small sample size, gotten wins and good performances against the top teams, but not about not against the mid-table teams, the lower table teams. And they've probably, you know, in terms of teams that have played Arsenal this year, other than the team that beat them, Manchester United, they are probably the second best game that Arsenal have gotten this season. So even in a game that they lost, Leeds were a lot better than them. And you're right. And I think that goes to... One, just the relentlessness of how they play. But two, I, I don't think that from an attacking standpoint, it's meant to be creative. It's meant to be players getting on the ball and orchestrating chances. It's about the chaos creating attacking moments. And I think in games where you're at home and you're expected to be, as they would say in Spanish, the protagonist in a game, you would you you want you would want in that situation a player to get on the ball and be the orchestrator and pull teams apart and create chances. And well, if you look at their XG numbers, they've always been good. They've always created chances. Uh, you almost wonder if the chaos is the reason why they are not scoring goals or if they just don't bury enough of their chances, if they're not clinical enough in front of goal. And for whatever reason, it's worked in these big games. Now, let's be honest. They did ride their luck in this game against Liverpool. Elon Melier, I think, set the season high for goalkeeper saves in a game with nine and came up with some really huge ones over the course of the game. And it seems as though he is asked 
to make one or two massive saves in every game. That is the danger. And that is sort of, I think at times, the lack of attention to defensive detail that has plagued this team. You saw on the on the goal that Liverpool scored kind of gets swung over them and the reset for a return ball from Robertson, which you know is coming, is poor because there's two and three options on the back post for Liverpool to go and score. So I, I do think that Leeds at times just make these pivotal mistakes that cost them. But I think in some ways their style, similar to how the New York version of this, the New York Red Bulls, this year they had a great, they had a great away record. But at home, when they're expected to have the ball, they weren't that good. And they went out in the playoffs losing in a home game. I think Jesse Marsh's teams will probably be similar where it's sort of in the games in which you don't expect them to get results that they might go and get a result. I do feel like now Jesse Marsh will be the coach through the World Cup break for Leeds. And I don't know if I would have said I thought that was necessarily the case. Um, I don't even think a draw, I don't I don't think a draw would have been good enough for him to be honest. I think if they draw 1-1, he might have gone. I mean, he says he's got the support of the board and you're right, the underlying data suggests that Leeds should not be a bottom of the table team. So, we'll see how much the board at Leeds continues to to focus on that as opposed to the actual points, but getting points, Jesse Marsh acknowledged this. You know, he needs to get points. Still does, by the way. And uh, this league is just so tough. But uh, big moment for Jesse Marsh, for Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson. Um, and you like the fact that Aronson and Adams are getting so much time in big games if you're a U.S. fan heading into this World Cup. And you know, like we can let that lead in a little bit here to just some U.S. men's national team discussion because we're starting to see some guys reemerge, like Tim Weah, who started on Sunday for Lille. We're starting to see other guys have some injury issues. Weston McKenney reports out that he's going to be out for two weeks. That's concerning. We're um, three weeks off in the World Cup, Grant. that is concerning uh matt turner was not on the game day roster for arsenal after not playing midweek in the europa league um that's the guy i think should be the starter and so that's an issue uh josh Sargent uh, has picked up a knock um and and so yeah there are some concerns here and injuries are injuries but this is also a u.s team that has dealt with a fair number of injuries yeah, and I, it starts to, I think, reveal how, you know, Mexico have actually gone about this in a completely different way, where they basically just said, here are the players that are going to the World Cup. We basically know this already for them. Whereas the U.S., there's some lingering doubts, and I think this is probably why you leave yourself that wiggle room if you're Greg Berhalter, because we just don't know. Minor injuries can become, take you out of the group stage injuries, because that, because of the condensed nature. The, the one negative in having some U.S. players play in Champions League is there are a ton of games, especially for a player like Weston McKenney, who is playing a ton of Champions League and they play every Saturday, every Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, and there is a risk for everyone involved. And you see, you know, teams like Chelsea making five and six changes uh, to their lineups in between games. And uh, other other teams are making big changes in between games because they're afraid of potential injuries. And I think for the U.S., you really just have to cross your fingers and hope that your preferred 11, and I know that Turner and Weston McKinney are part of it, but you hope that there are enough guys in your preferred 11 that survive what's going on here to the point that you can field your strongest team come the World Cup. But we also know that Gareth Bale for LAFC is not getting on the field because 
of either injuries or he's out of form as well. So this is going to be an issue that plagues every team. And it's why in some ways the debates that we have about lineups and who should be the first choice 11 and all that stuff isn't really terribly pertinent because some of this stuff is just going to be figured out on its own. Definitely true. And U.S. Soccer announced that they've got a group of MLS guys who are out of the playoffs with the national team who are going to be training down in Frisco, Texas. No surprises, but still, it does make you wonder a little bit. No Brandon Vasquez, no Eric Williamson. Um, And I understand neither of these players has been in a recent camp. Vasquez hasn't been in one at all for Greg Berhalter. But just the whole injury possibility thing makes me wonder, why not have a few guys like that in your camp? I think it... You, you don't. You probably don't want to raise false hope. I guess would be a thing that you. They get know concerned. the deal. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, look, they're they're play. I mean, there will be players that are named to a, a provisional squad. We we know this. I I don't know. I, I I honestly don't know. Other than you know, wanting to control narratives, wanting to you know, like for public reasons, but for internal sporting reasons, I mean, why not have a camp with twenty three players and <laughs> like it just all the way down as far as you could go, uh, like have. Caleb Wiley from Atlanta United in just because he's a promising young prospect. Like just go as far down as possible because what what could hurt? Nothing could really hurt in having a player uh, in, in a pool right now staying fit because you never know when you might need them. But I think Greg Berhalter seems to be fairly narrow. I think he knows who's on the plane right now. I don't think there's much that's changing his mind. And if Brandon Vasquez isn't going to be on the plane, then why bring him in? Before we get to the NWSL final, let's talk Newcastle United because they are doing well in the Premier League, but they're doing well in a way that maybe is against the script of how we saw Newcastle potentially doing well now that they're owned essentially by the Saudi Arabian state. And the players that they have, and in Miguel Almiron in particular is a guy they've had for a while. So he wasn't bought with the Saudi money. He was bought from Atlanta United for $27 million and for a lot of people was a bust for quite a while to the point where like Jack Grealish was making fun of him and now has, you know, Jack Grealish hasn't done anything close to what Miguel Almiron has been doing. I think it's like six straight weeks now of of, of, uh, goals for Almiron and and Newcastle is just from a soccer perspective, a really interesting team. Yeah, and you almost wonder if there's sort of a world... Now, maybe Eddie Howe never takes over Newcastle, if not for the fact that they have new owners that would have given him a lot of money to spend. But you wonder if there's a world in which like, not the Saudis took over and Eddie Howe took over as coach and they made a couple of shrewd signings and maybe this would still be happening even without the Saudi backing. Now, the Saudi backing is going to take them to a whole nother level. They will slowly but surely buy up some of the world's best players, and they will be eventually a behemoth to be reckoned with because that's just how these things go. But you're right. There is sort of a... There's a romantic way that they've gone about this, as little romance as there is in it, because Eddie Howe has taken a group of players, and if you look at, you know, for example, they're starting front six... Bruno Gamaret is obviously huge to what they've done. But other than that, it's Joe Willock, Sean Longstaff, Miguel Almiron, Callum Wilson, Joe Linton. Players who have been there. And also, as you said with Almiron, players who have been huge busts. Joe Linton was a player who was reviled 
at Newcastle. They spent $40 million on him, and for what? And they basically said to Eddie Howe, see if you can fix this, and if not, we'll, we'll, we'll bring some money in. And he only went and fixed Joel Linton. He went and fixed <laughs> Miguel Almiron. And most importantly to me, the thing that is sort of the, that provides the contrast is just how awful it was for them under Steve Bruce. <laughs> and Eddie Howe has, tur- has almost like given Miguel Almiron a new lease on life. Yeah. Like he was that grim for him at this club because they were so negative and they played with so little joy and so little positivity and progressiveness and trying to get the ball forward and, and putting attackers in good positions that to see Almiron cut off the right and smack in a ball from 23 yards out with a flawless... You, you look at the angle from behind the goal, you're like, how in the hell did he do that? And he's playing like the player we saw in Atlanta. And the thing that happened was he didn't change and become a worse player because he went to England. The context at the club he was at changed. And I think that should definitely weigh on our minds sometimes when we write players off as busts, as transfers, because you just don't know if the system that they're in or the coach that they're working under or the environment is working adversely against them. And it's very obvious that Miguel Almiron has always been an incredibly special player. He just needed someone to accent it. And that's why when I turn on Newcastle games, I sort of do so with a sense of wonder because, wow, look at what, like, it's a tribute to good coaching. And I sort of love watching that because it isn't all just about the players that they brought in. And I also just, I've always loved Almiron. I love the way he plays. I, I love the joy he brings to the game. He was a just tremendous player with Atlanta. And I think maybe we respect that or acknowledge that even more now that we've seen what's happened to Atlanta since he played there and, and since Tata Martino was the coach. And, you know, Joseph Martinez announced this week will not be coming back to Atlanta. And I remember the way Joseph Martinez and Miguel Amiron combined and, and they did that thing they did. What do you call that? Where they like celebrated and like did the like oh yeah sideways the, 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 thing? the joint the joint celebration where they got yeah, like, their arms stuff. and met in the middle. Yeah. You know? And like so I think Atlanta fans miss that not having those guys and, and, and playing at the level that they had before. But um it's just cool for me to see what what Amiron's doing and um, I, I've gotten to a point now where I get excited to watch Newcastle games, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. Yeah, they're they're joyous. They're really fun to watch. And I love the fact that this player gets to sort of validate himself, especially, as you said, against the backdrop of players like Jack Grealish, turning his name into a noun that connoted bad things. Like, to have an Almironi <laughs> is to have a bad game, which is preposterous. And and now it makes him, and every single time he scores a goal, you see in the mentions, Jack Grealish. It's why, frankly, players are discouraged from sending saying anything negative publicly because it, your words will be used against you as Jack Grealish is finding out. But I, I also think it's a good thing as well. I mean, we track all the time the progress of U.S. players. I think it's important to track the progress of MLS transfers because yeah. you know it does further validate the league and the European market, which is good for clubs to get more money in, in, in eventual sales. And you also see the way that it could potentially help each individual club. Because while we think of MLS as sort of this big thing, that and it's really about what does each club offer the European market. So now I think Diago Almada is, is probably the next player from Atlanta that's going to be of interest to European teams. And Almiron doing well can only be a good thing for him. Also, let's talk about the NWSL final. Portland Thorns to Kansas City current nil Early goal from Sophia Smith, the league MVP, the final MVP, big time player, had her on the podcast not too long ago, said she wanted to be the best player in the world. She's only 22. 
And she could become that eventually. Yeah, and came out of college as a 19-year-old and has performed really well at club level, as you said, is now the league MVP. And what a great moment for her to score that goal. Now, in some respects, you feel like Portland would have found a goal even without Sophia Smith on the field just because uh, they were just so clearly the better team in this game. And this is very much a year early for Kansas City Current. I think they were targeting the opening of their new stadium because that's going to be a really big moment for them and increasing their relevance in their own market and what a job they've done to basically go from a team that just took over and didn't have a name because they were absorbing uh, the identity of another team in Utah and trying to throw together a season and finishing rock bottom of the table. And then next year, you're playing for the for the cup final. It was a remarkable turnaround, but I think you saw a Portland team completely outclass their opposition on a neutral field. What a performance from them defensively, not letting up a single shot on target in the game. And Sophia Smith was there to take advantage of a mistake at the back from Kansas City, and they were just brilliant over the course of the full 90 minutes. You never felt for a moment that like this game was in doubt. Portland was going to win this title, and what a cool moment for those players because they've gone through so much this year, and what a cool moment for Sophia Smith, the league MVP, to score a goal and star in the game, and I think further declare herself as someone who shouldn't certainly should be in the fold uh, for the U.S. as a starter and for this club that uh, I would say for this group of players, not for this club, for this group of players um, to be able to celebrate something, to have some positivity at the end of what's been, I would imagine, immensely difficult year to be a player for the Portland Thorns. Well, we had Crystal Dunn from the Thorns on the podcast a couple of days ago uh, talking about what it's been like to be a player in that organization dealing with so much stuff in the Yates Report fall out and and just all of it. And I really liked how Crystal Dunn approached it. She said, you know, not everyone was always going to have a great day. And on the days when I didn't have a great day, I let people know and and I got supported by a team. And so for their fans as well, uh, they had a pretty good representation in the crowd. Um, and, and the crowd was good for a neutral site. I like that yeah. too. Um, and I, so. I, I, just lo- I just like how the fans... Yes, you can have enormous qualms with how the Portland organization have comported themselves for the last few years, but the fans sort of, I think we're able to straddle the line of we're very mad at our ownership and we're going to demand real change, but we're also not going to stop backing the players. And we're still going to be fans of this group of players because they deserve our backing. And you know, in some respects, obviously what's happened with the eight support is what happened in the past. They've made changes within the organization on the sporting side that yielded results. Remember, this is a team that lost their manager, Mark Parsons, who we should say had nothing to do with what happened uh, previously to the Dutch national team. And they basically get into the, the new, t- the new regime is managed by Karina LeBlanc, who used to work at uh, CONCACAF. And you also have Rian Wilkinson, a first-year manager, taking over and winning the league title. So you have to give huge credit to what they've done on the sporting side. And I think it's really important that they were well represented at this MLS Cup final because, uh, you know, they've been um, until Angel City arrived, the best supported team and San Diego, the best supported team in this league, year in and year out. This has been the hallmark organization of the league. They've won now three league titles. And this is one that probably means the most because I think if you look at everything that they went through on an off-field basis, these players galvanized at the most difficult possible time. The fans stuck by them, and I imagine players will have genuinely positive memories out of what, what's happened from this season. Now, I did talk to Sophia Smith uh, around the England game not long ago about you know because 
of the personnel situations, she started as a center forward in that game, not as a winger, which is where she usually starts with the national team. But it, she was like, look, at my club, I, I play center forward. And so I, I do think at a certain point, there may be a, a debate or a discussion to be had about what's her best position for the national team? Do, do you want to play her out wide or do you want to have her as a number nine? Because obviously she knows how to finish, does it quite well for her club. Yeah. And you can understand that there's just so many center forward options for the U.S. women's team. And you're trying to straddle a line, which is how do you get the best players on the field together at the same time while not putting too many out of position to sort of lose any sense of cohesion? I, I My personal feeling is that I don't think the forward line is where the issues lie for the U.S. Correct. Team. So I think that if you can get Sophia Smith on the field, great. They're probably three and four options at every attacking position that you could make a legitimate case for. Smith is a league MVP, deserves to be in and amongst it. You wonder if maybe as second half changes come on, maybe you bring a winger on and move Smith inside. But I, I, I'm not necessarily concerned. And ultimately, you only have really one position there. So it's going to be tough for any one player to not start at that number nine position. Still feel like Katarina Macario is the most likely scenario to start the number nine, but we shall see. Alex Morgan is coming off a great club season as well. Yeah. No, I know. It, uh, there's a lot of choices, possibilities there. So you want to have people healthy and, and playing well. Um, so for 2023, I guess that discussion, we will take a break and come back and recap the MLS semifinals. So we're back and we've got MLS semifinals to talk about. The MLS Cup final is set. It's going to be LAFC hosting Philadelphia. The top seeds get to the final, number one and number one, for the first time since 2003, which is it kind of embarrassing from my perspective for MLS. Really? Yeah. It is, Chris. I mean, like, it's, it's, I remember that game in 2003 and how excited I was for it. And it's crazy to me that 19 years have passed since the last time two number one seeds got to the final. That to me is a failure of playoff design. But we do have that this year. And these are the two best teams from the regular season in the league. And I'm very excited for it. And they both got there in different ways on Sunday here. LAFC 3-0 over Austin, totally dominated the game. Philadelphia has to come from behind to win 3-1 against New York City. Really fun game on Sunday night that just ended. What do you want to start with? You want to start with the night game? Yeah, just because we we, we just finished watching it. Uh, Philadelphia coming back from a goal behind. And it felt like one where the sort of playoff nous of NYCFC was going to win the day that because of the fact that they've been here before and they've won big games like this before, that they were going to be able to get over the line. And uh, it, it sort of felt like they would find the second. And basically, I was expecting the same game script as the Montreal match when Montreal dominated possession. They created chances. They didn't score. And NYCFC punished them on more than one occasion. And Philadelphia did just enough to stay in this game. They like sort of these chaotic moments uh, we were talking about earlier as it relates uh, Leeds and New York Red Bulls, and they like to sort of play in chaos. They, they thrive in chaos, and it's sort of perfect that they get their first goal that finally open, opens things up because NYCFC brought a sub on, and so in the change, one pass, one shot, one goal, boom, we're away, and then all of a sudden the game can change in transition moments, and that's where uh, Philadelphia love to thrive. 
you know, real breakdowns defensively from New York City cost them in the end on the just the the confusion in the middle of the sub that led to the first Philadelphia goal. And, you know, that was a really nice goal that New York City had scored with Maxi Morales finishing on a sequence that started with Sean Johnson, the goalkeeper. And you felt like when that happened, I was like, oh, yeah, this will be like Montreal, just like you said. And it didn't take long for Philadelphia to strike back, but that was sort of self-inflicted by New York City. And then poor defense again on the second goal, really nice pass, but there's there's no way that that should have been so open in front of the goal like that for Gazdag. And at that point, obviously, they had momentum. Corey Burke gets the third on staying with a play. Nice play overall by him. Um, but... It, it was it was a really interesting back and forth, and the way the momentum swung so quickly. Um, Jim Curtin and his product coat, very impressive on the sideline there. I thought he <laughs> made good subs in the second half, and the subs that New York City made didn't actually make them better. Yeah, and Alejandro Bedoya coming off at halftime very clearly didn't have 90 minutes, but it was sort of an emotional lift to get him back in the team. McGlynn comes on, and you can say he's at least in part at fault for the goal, uh, for his inability to cover yeah. in midfield, but then uh, helps create the transition moment, then puts in a really good ball into the area into Julian Carranza, who then nods it across uh, for, for the second. Carranza's narrative is certainly interesting, certainly from a myopic Miami perspective, the former Miami player uh, who has been super impressive this year uh, in arriving and basically finding his footing, finding a system that fit him and I think it was really cool that both he and Miami were able to sort of find their own way at that position. But it, it is still a story. He arrives as a young player who was one of Inter Miami's first two ever signings and struggled for his first two years in the league. Could have said, well, just never adjusted, could have gone back to South America. But instead, Philadelphia spotted it as a chance, as an opportunity uh, to find a really good young talent for cheap and turn him around. That's exactly what they do in some ways. His arc of the season is reflective of what Philadelphia does as an organization. And then he produces a goal in the conference final and an assist in the conference final. Really pivotal one. As you said, huge mistakes at the back from NYCFC. I think the thing that must be frustrating from their perspective is that this isn't really the way that a champion goes out. Normally you have to do something impressive, put together a 20-pass sequence or something in order to unseat the champion. And it just doesn't feel like New York, that New York City were really unseated. They were sort of victims of their own downfall, right? They, they, they were the architects of their own demise, and to use another cliche, in this conference final. And I th- I'm, I'm sort of surprised that this is how they went out because their, their first two games in the playoffs were so comprehensive, so emblematic of a team that has been there and done that before and that playoff experience served them so well. And then it just sort of fell apart in a 10-minute period in Philadelphia. I think also shouldn't forget Andre Blake with a monster save to keep the game from going to 2-0 not long after City had scored. And at the time, you're like, oh, if Philly gets back in the game, this is going to be a huge moment. Write that down. It was a huge moment. Andre Blake, the the MVP chance on every goal kick now. Um, Just an impressive season, several seasons now that he's had, but he is... Uh, absolutely terrific, came up huge tonight. And is there anything else you want to say about this game? I mean, like the atmosphere, I thought, in Philly just looked amazing on TV, and they really have built something there. They haven't lost at home all season long. Um, that's a good soccer crowd, it, the, the kind of crowd you want to 
you, you want to be a part of that. Yeah. And while the the scenes there, when you look at like the, you know, pregame, you see the shots of the Delaware River and that bridge looks really cool. You almost wish it was a bit more connected to downtown Philadelphia. That's sort of what a lot of these newer clubs have done is been a bit more connected to downtowns. But for me, the overriding feeling, and this is where I guess we can sort of branch out of our very soccer specific view of things, is that what an incredible time to be a sports fan in Philadelphia. Yeah. The Phillies are in the World Series. The Philadelphia Eagles won again today. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers have gotten off to something of a surprising start for them. And Philadelphia Union, who I think we should also talk about, and maybe we will over the course of this next week building up to the final, just their arc as a club, how rudderless and anonymous, really, they were. Even within their own city, you mentioned the environment that they built. This is a fairly recent phenomenon. They went a couple seasons having success before they really started to pack that place out, and every game was a big occasion. 2020, I, they were they were very good, but that's the COVID season. Uh, last year, their environment's really good, and this year, it's been the same. But uh, this is a club that took a while to come online and really uh, register in the Philadelphia sports scene, and I hope uh, that it sort of uh, works its way out from the noise, as was evident in a TikTok that went viral in which uh, someone would ask a celebrating Philadelphia Phillies fan, yeah, and the union are doing well too. And they're like, the blue collar workers? Uh, hopefully, uh, Philadelphia over the course of this next week emerge as a team that's not just blue collar workers, but a team that could eventually bring uh, Philadelphia some more silverware. Yeah. By the way, I think the first hockey reference we've ever had in the podcast. So <laughs> I could not tell you how the Philadelphia Flyers are doing, even though I, I did hear it. Like, the Eagles are like 7 and 0, right? So, like, yeah, the Eagles are doing well sensational. To, to the Phillies. Um, my biggest pop culture moment with the Philadelphia Union over the years was in Mayor of Easttown. Great series with Kate Winslet, where there's actual scenes outside the stadium that. They don't actually explain that it's the Philadelphia Union Stadium, but I knew it was, <laughs> you know, when I was watching it. You were probably the only person watching the Mayor of Easttown. I was like, hey, I know that place. I've been there before. Let's talk about the other game, LAFC 3, Austin nil. Not really close. Probably should have even been a wider scoring margin in the first half, and LAFC finishes them off, and now they're going to host the final a little disappointed maybe in Austin's performance in this game, but LAFC was very good. Yeah, I I think the disappointment for me is a bit more profound when it comes to Austin just because I thought they played really well in the last round. I They've been, for me, one of the stories of the season. We talked about them uh, during the summer. You talked to Josh Wolf, and it was, for me, you know, a sort of perfect example of MLS building, right? Year one, you lay the foundations, and year two, you're ready to go. And they put together a brilliant season. And similar to New York City going out this way, I think Austin would have been disappointed to go out this way because at no point did they ever really demonstrate the full breadth of their identity as a club. They're so good playing with the ball and using the ball to create chances. And they're one of the most exciting teams in the league. And I just felt like they never got going today at any point. Never did they show flow. Did they create a flurry of chances? Did they cause problems for their opponent? This was smooth sailing for LAFC, who deserve a ton of credit. And then I think you look at this playoffs, there's always going to be someone who sort of emerges as one of the, the big stories of this season. I think you have to give huge amounts of credit to John Thorrington and Steve Gerundolo for the job that they've done in transitioning and transitioning straight into winning. That's not easy. Right. They had an era. The era ended. A new era begins, and it's already immensely successful. When you look at how they built that team, 
in the in the winter and then went again in the summer to continue to add players, uh, some of whom provided impact, some of whom surprisingly didn't, namely Gareth Bale. Giorgio Chiellini started today and played 45 minutes, but I, I'm still stunned at how well they've built this team. And yeah, there are some holdovers. You have Jose Cifuentes, who's huge, and Diego Palacios, who are huge. Uh, they're, they're Ecuadorian players. Ilya Sanchez was a huge signing in the yeah. offseason. But I think you just see the way that LAFC went and just built a relentlessly solid team that knows how to operate within this league. And Steve Chirundolo, who you look at, for example, Paulo Nagamura takes over in Houston. He was a manager of the USL uh, reserve team in Kansas City and didn't work out, gets fired after less than a season. Steve Chirundolo comes into this LA team without really any professional managerial record to speak for and puts together a Supporter Shield winning season and you win a home game and you're, you've are you done the double, uh, winning both Supporter Shield and MLS Cup. So you have to give him enormous credit for how they've gone about this season and, and that club for transitioning so easily when it's not always that simple. Uh, you know, you lost Diego Rossi. It was kind of up in, up in the air whether or not Carlos Vela would come back. You've made a ton of changes and Steve Chirundolo has been dealt probably among the more difficult challenges you can be handed as a first-time manager in terms of managing personalities and minutes and changes. And here they are, a home game away from winning the winning it all. I will say he did have talent to work with. So That's true. not every MLS coach begins with talent to work with. And yet there is a challenge that comes with that, like you say, of managing egos, of trying to get the right combination on the field. And the fact that Gareth Bale doesn't play much at all is a sign of like, there's a coach there who's willing to make a decision that's not just about the name of the player on who's going to play on this team. Um, I would say also, it's funny because it was just at the beginning of the season, right? When we were talking about Paulo Nagamura and Steve Chirundolo coming in and how many losses they'd had in lower league soccer and wondering if that would be a problem. And Nagamura just didn't work out and, and got let go. And Trundolo won from the start, won the supporter shield. And, you know, you always had a sense that Steve Trundolo was a really smart guy, even when he was a player and that, Oh, that guy would make a good coach, but you never know for sure. And, you know, so far so good. He's taken the most of this opportunity and they're going to be in a good place to win a league title at home next weekend, even though I think it's going to be a really interesting game. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Chicho Arango, I want to talk about because Chicho Arango just produces and produces and produces and maybe isn't the name on the marquee when you're talking about LAFC. Maybe he should be. Yeah, and it's remarkable because even when he arrived last year, and for me, if he, if he arrives seven games earlier last year, um, because he came in midseason and then uh, sort of jumped aboard that moving train. But if he arrived seven games earlier, for me, they're a playoff team. Maybe, I don't know, Bob Bradley sticks around. I don't know if that was always uh, on the cards he was going to leave. But th- they always just needed a straightforward, solid finisher. And they had glimpses of it in their first couple of years. I remember uh, Diamande was a player who uh, mm-hmm. had had a decent run, and Christian Ramirez had a decent run, and they had a couple strikers come through that maybe were going to be that number one striker that were going to lead them to the promised land. But man, if they had this player really from the start, they might already have an MLS Cup. Uh, in his time in LA, he's got 34 goals in 56 games. He's had an impressive scoring record, and you can tell. I mean, at times. 
look, is he the best presser in the world? No. Is he the best technically? Not always. But and just you just see classic number nines where all they live for is scoring goals. They know how to score goals. They know the positions to arrive into. They have the class in front of goal to finish off chances. Arango is just a player who is an out-and-out out goal scorer and came up huge again today with another goal. And you you would not want to come up against a team that is a player like that in form because you just sort of know that even if they're down, they always have a goal in them as long as he's on the field. A couple other LAFC guys I want to mention. You mentioned Ilya Sanchez, tremendous pickup, underrated, huge impact on that team all season long. And that was not going to, that was not guaranteed, right? And, mm-hmm. and so the fact that he's had a tremendous season has continued that during the playoffs. I thought he was solid today. Uh, and then in the goal, Crepeau is not the best keeper in the league, in my opinion, but it, they've had some real tomato cans in goal at LAFC <laughs> over the years. And that's been a real problem. You can't be terrible in that position. And they've been terrible. And so to have someone there who's competent, like Crepo, better than competent at times, um, I think that's made a huge difference. Massive. And that, those are the things that I think we're left wanting in this team these last couple of years. They didn't have enough depth so that if they had an injury... It didn't cripple them. This year, they very clearly decided, we're not going 13 deep. We're going 20 deep. We want to have a good squad. And honestly, it might be one of the best squads, 1 to 20, in the history of the league in terms of just the the amount of talent that they're able to spread through the roster, the players they can bring off the bench. They have Christian Theo on the bench who like barely plays. Yeah. They have four or five wing players that would be starters on other MLS teams, and it's hard to even find minutes for them. So they, they went out and dressed their depth. Uh, you mentioned Sanchez. He's been a, a huge player for them. I think the last few years in Kansas City might have been scapegoated at times for how open they were in defense and in midfield. And as a sole number six, I remember going into the season thinking, I don't know, man, that, that team can be pretty easily picked apart if he's your only holding midfield player because he doesn't have the range to to cover ground like uh, a, a classic number six does. But they've managed to make it work. They have a great structure, and and he's a huge part of it. And I'm just I'm blown away by what they've done in such a short space of time. It's a testament to, you know, there are teams in MLS that have a ton of resources and they don't know how to deploy them. Well, LAFC have a ton of resources. As you said, you can't really question that, but they have deployed them flawlessly. And like Philadelphia, great atmosphere yeah. at that stadium. It's fun to watch on TV. I'm sure it's going to be a great scene next weekend. And just initial thoughts on the matchup. We've seen LAFC and Philadelphia play a couple of times uh, over the last couple of years, and they've been pretty compelling games. Yeah, I think... Was that I think the the last the, the the game I most remember between them was the last game before COVID ended the yeah, season. The Glesnes, right? when, when, yeah, <laughs> Jake, uh, Jacob Glesnes had this massive strike from like forty yards out. That was the goal of the season, and is my sort of lasting memory of sports before COVID. Uh, yeah, I I think it's a really interesting stylistic battle. I also I'm not exactly certain how I would describe LAFC stylistically. Because they are not the build from possession team, but they're not really out and out transition either. I would get, I guess I just sort of describe them as a normal soccer team. They they play in transition. They don't always have the ball, but they defend pretty well. They're just sort of normal. And I'm curious how much Philadelphia can bend the style of of the game to their favor and and change things. But I I am fascinated that as you said, this is one versus one. These have been the best teams. They've had periods in the regular season in which they were so obviously the best team. I think they are, you know, 
if there was sort of a WWE championship belt of the season, LAFC would have had it for like the first 18 match days and then handed off to Philly and then maybe gave it back to LAFC with two games to go. These have been the two best teams. And it's rare that we get this in the playoffs, the two best teams playing it out for the championship. I hope we get it more often, but I'm not going to complain about the playoff format. I think it's worked out very well, actually, this postseason. I've enjoyed the the elimination rounds to get to this point, and I'm, I'm really excited about this final. And and you can tell that the uh, it was the right amount of rest for a one seed. Ten yes. days was the right amount of rest where it's not a disadvantage because you haven't right. played, but it is an advantage because you have a 10-day rest advantage against a team that has you know, played on minimum four days or whatever. It, it worked out for the one seeds this year. So now we'll have, just have a new playoff structure next year, it sounds like. Yeah, reportedly we're going to a World Cup format, so we'll see how that changes things. Thanks, Chris, as always. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.